What's up, everyone? Welcome back to season two of What If I Told You. So glad you're here. I took a couple of weeks off um, to end season one, but we're back and we're better than ever. And this is the start of season two, and I'm excited, and we're starting off with a banger today. So I hope you're ready, because I am. Uh, Whether this is your first time um, at the podcast and you're new here, or if you've been here for a while, or if you've been here since day one, I want to say a massive thank you, thank you, thank you for for listening in. If you don't know, my name is Jaron, and this podcast is really all about describing my life and the time that I spent um, in religion, dealing with some of the things that I believed during that time that now looking back, I really think were silently burning me out and, and secretly burning me out on it all, on the idea of Christianity, on the idea of um, the church, on the idea of working in the ministry, burning me out on it all. But most importantly, bringing the truth of God's grace to those areas and to those things that I once believed. And one of those things for me growing up in religion, one of those things that I believed was the need to stray away from, quote unquote, the world. Have you ever heard a preacher say something to the effect of, we need to run away from the world? Or maybe they said it like this, you need to not look like the world. And when I was growing up, you had to avoid at all costs looking like, quote unquote, the world. And particularly in youth groups and youth camps, running away from the world was a central theme and a central um, topic of a lot of what we talked about most of the time. Whether it was um, directly or indirectly, it was a lot of what we talked about. Now, if this wasn't you or you maybe didn't grow up in church, so you don't know what I mean by the world. And when I say the world, understand this in Christianity, the world is pretty much seen as the opposite as pursuing righteousness or pursuing right living or trying to be right before God. And then then the majority of modern church, and this is both Catholic and Christian, by the way, they typically correlate the world with their version of sin. So for me, as an evangelical Christian, looking like the world was drinking, it was smoking, it was partying, it was cussing, it was having premarital sex, because that's that's what the my essence of um, sin was in my worldview. So this may look different for different denominations that you may come in contact with, but that's what it looked like for me as an evangelical Christian. And we would hear sermons all the time about how God loved the world, yet he loathed it at the same time. That the world represented, truthfully, everything God hated. We believed that we lived in a sinful world and that human beings were sinful to their core, and so God hated it. And, and we, that's why we needed to stray away from it. We heard sermons about how if we wanted to stay in the will of God, we needed to stray away and run away from the world. We needed to not look like the world if we wanted to stay in the will of God. And if you began to look a little bit like the world, well, yeah, you're, you need to get back in the will of God. And while I'm here on this topic really quick, let me pause and add the fact that the will of God is not a place. The will of God is not a destination. The will of God is not a journey. Let me tell you, the, the will of God is a person and that person is Jesus. 
Jesus is the will of God. Listen, I may do an entire episode just on this topic, the will of God, because it was something that I felt so much pressure uh, from in my time in religion. But be encouraged that Jesus is the will of God. And Jesus, as a believer, he's in you. So what does that mean? Well, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, You are smack dab. In fact, you're smack dab red hot in the center of God's will for your life. So we preach all these sermons um, imploring people to not look like the world. But I think, truthfully, in an effort to encourage behavioral purity, which isn't necessarily a bad thing all of the time, but in an effort to encourage behavioral purity, we lose sight of Jesus. I did. My focus was so dead set on my behavior and trying to keep up and trying to run away from the world and trying to avoid specific things that looks like the world that I lost sight of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I did all of it because I was told that that's what would make Jesus pleased with me. But I realized eventually, what's the point in doing all of that if what really matters which is Jesus himself, gets lost in my mind in the process. What's the point in trying to upkeep this behavior? What's the point in trying to run away from the world if in the process Jesus gets lost in my mind because I'm so focused on that? And if I'm honest, it also bred some really deep-seated self-righteousness in my mind too. And also, to be honest, I don't think I'm the only one that can say that. I became pretty judgmental of the people around me um, and particularly the people who I saw that were more quote unquote worldly than me. It swelled my head. And like I said, I don't think I'm the only person who can say that. I think most Christians are at least guilty a few times in, um, in their lives of seeing someone who isn't doing as good of a job as them um, to their standard, at least. And, seeing themselves a little bit, a little bit higher than them, a little bit, you know, seeing yourself in a little bit better light because of someone else's inability to live to your standard. And so it's, so it's swelled my head, but this is the question I want to pose today. What if the world quote unquote, isn't exactly what we think it is? Because as I came to truly know the gospel, I realized some really very important things regarding what I saw as the world. And here it is. In the Bible, the world isn't always in reference to a culture full of sin and bad behavior. It's not always in reference to smoking and drinking and partying and whatever that may have looked like for you. In fact, it rarely is. And there's a couple of things that we all need to understand to grasp the full view of what the world is in Scripture. And the first of those um, couple of things is this. We need to understand that Jesus himself had a very interesting viewpoint on the world, quote unquote. Now, to provide some context as to why I'm saying this, in the life of Jesus' ministry, he faced plenty of opposition and hate, plenty of it. While Jesus absolutely changed the trajectory of the world, it did not come with, without pushback. I think we all know that. It didn't come without 
um, some sort of hate. He was he was hated. He was judged. He was name called. He was labeled a fraud to some groups. I mean, it's eventually that's what led him to being sentenced to die, which we all know now is what needed to happen uh, for us to be saved. And I'm super thankful for that. But the point is, he did not um, in, endure his time in ministry without some um, intense opposition and, and some intense pushback. However, the importance behind this isn't so much what Jesus endured, but rather who he endured it from. Jesus wasn't, Jesus' struggle wasn't with quote unquote sinners. He didn't face much opposition from the people I would have in religion, I would have labeled as quote unquote the world or people who were worldly. No, the vast, vast, vast majority of the opposition and hate Jesus received and the struggle Jesus endured was from the religious teachers. Now, time and time and time and time again throughout the Gospels, which, if you don't know, are the first four books of the New Testament, it really just depicts the life of Jesus um, or the, the Jesus' time on earth and his ministry. We see the same story time and time again all throughout um, the Gospels. And it goes like this. Jesus finds a group of people who are in need. Jesus does something incredible. He heals someone who's sick. He turns water into wine. He does this. He does that. He runs off. Um, he runs off demons. He does all this stuff. Jesus does something incredible. The Pharisees, who were the religious teachers and scholars, they were called the Pharisees. They tried to condemn Jesus for what he does, and then Jesus proves them wrong. We see that cycle play out over and over. We see that story an insane amount of times. All to show us that Jesus' struggle was not with this, the sinners. It was with the religious teachers. And Jesus also dealt far more, far more with the issues of religion than he ever did with any sort of behavioral issues or behavioral sin. Each time that scenario played out in scripture that I just talked about, Jesus made it a point to contradict his mission with the ideals of the religious scholars. Every single time that that story played out, Jesus kind of had a little drop the mic moment. And you need to understand that Jesus opposed the religious leaders on almost every front. And we'll get to why this is important in a second, but understand that Jesus opposed the religious leaders on almost every front. While Jesus came to serve others in humility, the religious leaders were puffed up and expected, and then they expected to be treated as better than those who were below them. While the Pharisees detested and wouldn't even speak to those who were caught in sin, Jesus he sat in their homes and he healed them. While Jesus took an ordinary group of teenagers and made him his disciples, the religious leaders had some pretty strict high and high standards um, to, of what it took to be one of their own. We see this story play out over and over. Jesus opposed them on almost every front. And even with the famous Sermon on the Mount, if you don't know what that is, it's in Matthew chapter 5. Um, and I think six as well. Even on the famous Sermon on the Mount, it's important to understand 
that Jesus is speaking a message to the self-righteous. Jesus is speaking a message not to a group of um, to a group of of lowly sinners. No, he's speaking a message to the self-righteous. And the underlying theme of everything Jesus says is to point out the impossibility of what the religious teachers are trying to accomplish. He's pointing out the impossibility of trying to keep all the laws that the religious teachers are demanding from the people. And most of us who grew up in church remember the part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, we all heard this is, is kind of a really big extreme. Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, gouge it out, and throw it away. And I would hear all the time that that's a really um, intense um, point of Jesus really emphasizing the weight of sin. But I don't think that's what it is. I think Jesus is pointing out the impossibility of keeping up with what so many of us still continue to try and keep up with today. But beyond all of that, potentially the most important piece of Jesus' perspective on the religious leaders is this. Most of the time, this is important, most of the time, when Jesus referred to the world, he was referring to the religious leaders. If you didn't catch that, that's important. Most of the time, when Jesus referred to the world, he was referring to the religious leaders. There's a passage in, um, there's a passage of, of verses in John 15, where Jesus is encouraging his disciples, again, this group of teenage, ordinary teenage boys, to stay strong in the face of opposition. Jesus says this, just, he, this is Jesus speaking, just remember, when the unbelieving world hates you, they first hated me. If you were to give your allegiance to the world, they would love and welcome you as one of their own. But because you won't align yourself with the values of this world, they will hate you. I have chosen you and taken you out of the world to be mine. Boy, you better believe I heard this passage all the time as a kid. And the interpretation of the scripture typically looked like this. You ready? It looked like the world and their sinful ways are going to hate you for standing up for truth. They're going to hate you for keeping God's standard and living right so you can please God. If the world loves you, listen, you're probably not living right. People would say stuff like this, I'd rather be hated by the world and loved by God than be loved by the world and be hated by God. That was typically the interpretation of those kind of scriptures. Now, beyond this just being a shame tactic that made me feel like I wasn't pleasing God if my friends liked me. Because that's how I felt. I really did feel like if my friends liked me, that means the world didn't hate me. Therefore, I wasn't pleasing God. This interpretation of this scripture misses something incredibly important. And and these well-meaning preachers say things like this. And they don't finish reading just a little bit further past this point. In the following verses, the same conversation, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone hates me, they also hate my father. If I had not performed miracles in their presence, like no one else has done, 
they would not feel the guilt of their sins. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Okay, here's the important part. Catch this. This is Jesus speaking. Same conversation about how the world's going to hate his disciples. And all of this has happened to fulfill what is written in their scriptures. They hated me for no reason. Listen, I hope you noticed the really important piece here. Jesus says while telling his disciples that the world is going to hate them, that it, that it what? That it happened to fulfill what is written in their scriptures. Whose scriptures? The religious leaders. Their scriptures. Jesus was talking in this passage about the world hating his disciples. He was talking about the religious leaders. This is such an important distinction to make. And here's why. Jesus was encouraging his disciples to remember that when they face persecution and and hate and, and opposition from the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus also faced the same things. But Jesus wasn't warning them about the sinners, quote unquote. Jesus was warning them about the prideful, self-righteous leaders who thought they were above everyone else and who thought they were better than everyone else. So, in short terms, at least in this instance, that's used frequently in sermons. Who is the world, quote-unquote, to Jesus? Well, it's the religious leaders who didn't believe who Jesus says he was, and they hated him for it. I, I, I think that's pretty insane to realize, at least considering the context of how I viewed stuff like that growing up. I would have seen that passage of scripture and been like, whoa, if the world doesn't hate me, I'm doing something wrong. It would encourage me, it, it, would, it would spur up this little fire in my belly to try and do good things. And more importantly, to avoid, um, like I said, going to parties and smoking and drinking and having sex and all this stuff. But it was all in an attempt because... I saw this passage of scripture and, and, and things like it and was like, whoa, I need to make sure that I, I'm kind of hated by the world because I'm living my life so right and because I'm so right before God and because I'm living so righteously and holy. But it was all in vain because I had the wrong group of people in mind. And, and really, if I'm being honest, in an attempt to avoid looking like the world, based on Jesus' depiction of what the world is, if I'm honest, I started to look more like it than I even thought. Now, the second thing we all need to understand is this. After Jesus' life, the New Testament deals with both extremes of what, quote unquote, the world is. So you may be asking the question, and I'm going to answer right now, is sin a part of what the Bible talks about in reference to the world? Well, yes, but it's incredibly important to not only swing on that one piece, which is what so many in the church have done. The church has spent years and decades and decades swinging on that one piece. But Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament... Was and, and was also, might I add, one of the most successful people in spreading the message of the gospel after Jesus left the earth. 
He deals with both the issue of sin and he deals with the issue of man-made religion in his letters that he writes to the specific churches of his day. Now, here's the kicker. Both of them hold equal weight to Paul. Now, understand this. Paul writes that, and he tells us that he had one focus. Paul had one focus in the New Testament, and that was preaching Christ and Christ crucified. In other words, the sole focus of Paul's ministry was emphasizing without end, emphasizing without end what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. And in his letters that he writes to the churches of his day, he addresses different issues that he sees, but the central theme is encouraging and in fact imploring these churches that he's speaking to to stay fixated on Christ and Christ alone. He's encouraging and imploring these churches to stay fixated on Christ and Christ alone. And what we see throughout the Bible, throughout the letters that Paul writes, is that these churches that Paul writes to, they tend to lose their focus and they tend to shift away from that one message, the one message that Jesus proclaimed. And it usually, when that happened, when they tend to stray away from that message, it usually manifested in one of two ways. It either resulted in self-seeking behavior, otherwise known as sin, or it resulted in self-sustained religion. It was either self-seeking behavior or it was self-sustained religion. And we see this pretty clearly with his letters to both the Corinthian and the Galatian church. For the Corinthian church, their loss of focus resulted in self-seeking behavior, what we call sin. And which at its core is just simply behavior that is self-seeking. And he addresses their jealousy. He addresses their division. He, div- he addresses their fights with each other. And he continues on to address incredibly unhealthy relationships that he sees within their church. All of which, and all these things, the, the division that he deals with, the jealousy that he addresses, the fights that he's seeing with each other, the unhealthy relationships that people are having, it's all rooted in the world's way of putting yourself above everyone else. So in that context, yes, you can say that the world is is sinful. But you need to also understand that with the Galatian church that Paul writes to, their loss of focus resulted in them not necessarily living a life of bad behavior, but rather reverting back to living according to the law of Moses and trying to maintain their right standing with God based on their behavior and effort. Paul addresses in this letter, he addresses their lack of trust in Jesus' finished work. And instead, their their, um, idea of following the world's traditions and systems, otherwise known as man-made religion. In fact, Paul makes it pretty plain right at the beginning of his letter to the Galatian church, what they're struggling with. He tells them pretty flat out. He says this in verse 6, right at the beginning of the letter, he says this, I am shocked, this is Paul speaking, I am shocked over how quickly you have strayed away from the one who called you in the grace of Christ. This is still Paul speaking, I'm frankly astounded that you now embrace a distorted gospel. That is a fake gospel that is simply not true. Paul's saying that's fake news. 
I'm sorry. I had to go there. It's fake news. This is continually, this is continued Paul speaking. He says this, there is only one gospel, the gospel of the Messiah, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace. Yet you have allowed those who mingle law with grace to confuse you with lies. What I'm getting at is this. Paul understood that looking like, quote unquote, the world looked different for different groups of people. And this, honestly, it destroys the assumption, to me at least, it destroys the assumption that the world is just groups of drunkards and partiers and swindlers because Paul also lumps in to this group of people who looked like the world, those who live in a self-sustained system. And here's why. Here's what the world looks like. If you're waiting for this answer and you're waiting to know what the world looks like, well, here's your answer. Anything apart from trusting Jesus with the truth of his finished work. Let me say that a little bit slower, a little bit clearer for the people in the back. Anything apart from trusting Jesus with his finished work. That's what the world looks like, which includes those who try to keep their perfect status with God on their own. I mean, Paul makes it pretty clear what he sees as, quote unquote, the world in his letter to the Colossians. In his letter to the church at Colossae, he makes it pretty clear. He says this, if if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of this world, of this world, he's using the world, why, as though you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. So we see here that Paul has a pretty strikingly similar view of what the world is as Jesus. And I love the way that it's worded in the message translation. It says this, So then if with Christ you've put all that pretentious and infantile religion behind you, why do you let yourselves be bullied by it? In other words, why do you let yourselves be dragged back into it? Don't touch this. Don't taste that. Don't go near this. That's the things that the religious scholars used to say. He's asking these people, why are you continuing to let yourself be brought back into this system if Christ set you free from it? I mean, it's it's pretty clear. And just a, a couple of verses later, Paul continues on to say this, for though those things may appear to possess the promise of wisdom, though those things may appear to gain wisdom and their submission to God, it is actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. Now, I heard all the time that the world will leave you feeling empty and void and defeated. And they weren't wrong. <laughs> they weren't wrong. Yeah, sin, sin, self-seeking behavior leaves you feeling empty. But so does trying to follow empty rules that bring no real benefit. Because that's what it does. It brings no real benefit. Listen, the law was fulfilled on your behalf by Jesus. Yet so many of us, so many of us, and this may be you, spend our time trying to still follow a worldly system of working, praying, and fasting your way to God. 
And that's a way that Jesus freed us from. It's a way that Jesus freed us from. And yet so many of us spend our our time trying to still follow that system. Now time out. Time out. I'm forgetting the most important scripture on this topic. Some would call it the Thanos of runaway from the world scriptures. One of the most popular verses in all the Bible. You ready? It's Romans 12, 2. It says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you grew up in church, I bet 10 out of 10 that you heard that. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now this staple, or this verse was a staple for me as a kid. Yet this verse, understand, this verse relates back to the piece of Colossians we just read a second ago. So what are the patterns of this world? Well, it looks like living your life for yourself and relying on anything you do to keep your right standing with God. It looks like living for yourself or trying to rely on your effort, your behavior, and your ability to keep your right standing with God. That's what the patterns of this world are. So when Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, that's what it's talking about. Relying on anything, any system, any any fasting system, any praying system that it claims it's going to bring you closer to God or help you keep your right standing with God. Now, before I move on, I want to say too that when I say that living for yourself, I'm not saying that self-care and taking care of yourself and loving yourself is a bad thing. Obviously, self-love is important. Self-care is important. I think um, the church doesn't do a good enough job at, at, at saying that. But what I'm saying is being self-centered, being focused solely on yourself, putting yourself above others. Listen, the world, as we know it, is concerned with self above everything else, concerned with themselves over everything else. And while it manifests in different ways, it really all stems from the same place. And that is not receiving the outlandish love and the perfect grace of God. Now, notice I didn't say that it stems from you not getting right with God. No, I didn't say that. Because like we've talked about before, our rightness with God was completely fulfilled by Jesus. The only part we play in this equation is receiving that right standing. So where do we go from here with this new understanding of what Scripture sees as the world? Yes, it involves sin, but it very much also involves trying to live under a system of doing things based on your own effort. So I'll offer this thought. Maybe in our church services, when we speak about not being like the world, maybe we should focus less on harping on specific behaviors And maybe we should shift that focus to talking about fully trusting Jesus with our righteousness and with our right standing. Because when we trust Jesus' finished work, I said finished work, that he completed for us and as us, listen, selfish 
living in selfish behavior and self-effort, they fall away. The more you trust him, the more you trust Jesus' finished work, the more that stuff just naturally falls away. So the world refers to far more than just behavior. It refers more to anything outside of trusting and remaining in the finished work of Christ, which unfortunately is the pattern uh, a large portion of Christianity today is still caught in. But as we've discovered what the Bible really has to say about, quote unquote, the world, I want to encourage you to rest in Jesus' promise that he gives to his disciples. He says to his disciples, I have overcome what? The world. And if Jesus overcame it, you can bet your money, you can bet your bottom dollar that you have everything you need already, already, you have everything you need already in Christ to do the same. Not out of your best effort or your steadfastness or your faithfulness, but out of the faithfulness of Christ and the identity that he purchased for you and the identity that he gave you freely the moment you believed. Jesus overcame the world and now because he lives in us, we can do the same. We can overcome self-seeking behavior. We can overcome trying to maintain our right standing with God on our own effort and trust Jesus that he already did that for us. Y'all, that's the start of season two. Start of season two. I'm so glad that you're back with us for season two. I'm so excited for the things that we're going to talk about. Now, I want to say really quickly before I leave, next, the next two episodes that we're going to um, talk about in season two, I actually need your help on. Okay, I actually need your help because the next two episodes that I'm going to do on the podcast are going to be addressing um, scary, difficult, um, intimidating scriptures in the Bible. I'm taking them piece by piece, one by one, and I'm going to break it down and, and, and talk about how it relates to God's grace and how it relates to your life. Today. So if you have any pieces of the Bible, any scriptures, any passages of scripture that really just kind of scared you now, don't just throw the book of Revelation at me because listen, that is a whole um, other podcast on its own, not just an episode. That's a whole nother podcast on its own. But if there's specific scriptures or passage um, passages of scripture that confuse you, that intimidate you, that seem to kind of contradict this message of grace, I want you to DM me on Instagram at Jaron. J-E-R-R-O-N underscore Archer, A-R-C-H-E-R. DM me those scriptures, why you think it's intimidating, why it scares you, why it confuses you, why you think it kind of contradicts um, the message um, of God's grace. And we're going to talk about it the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm probably going to bring on a guest for those episodes to talk about those as well. So you get some different perspective other than just my own. And so I'm super excited about that. So give me your help with that. Send me some of those scriptures. And I can't wait to see you right back here for another episode, another installment of season two of What If I Told You. All right. Have a great week. Bye.